one of the guys who I got to, you know, endorse my book, he wrote back and said that he was going to say, whenever I think of depression, I think of Paul. And you didn't let him put that as the endorsement? <laughs> I would have. I thought that was great. I would have loved it. It would have been a nice little dose of whenever humor in a book about, about depression. Yeah, his actual quote was, whenever I think about depressing things, I think of Paul Lacey. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All, and back inside our crazy brains. I'm Jake. I am Paul. As previewed, this episode is all about the GOAT, the greatest of all time, one fanboy, Paul AC. And also, uh, my children who refuse to be called. (laughs) Paul used to wonder why Jake would be willing to drive an hour and a half round trip to record at Paul's house. And this is why <laughs> Paul doesn't have four children, 10 and under that, you know, refuse to be quiet. It's, it's a good point. I, I do think that we're getting to the stage where we could actually record in person again. That's true. We might be able to go to the library. We might be able to come over to this place. We could just, I could go over to your place and we could just let the kids play outside. It would be great. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll just send them out under the trampoline in their pajamas. Exactly. Exactly. Or we could do an early morning podcast. Uh, go back to our early days. Exactly. exactly. We started out as an early morning podcast. We did start off as an early morning podcast. I had forgotten. Man, we have been doing this podcast for way too long. AM Drive Time Radio. We're getting really close to our 100th episode. We are. We are, dear listener. And we're only getting better, finer with age, like wine and cheese. Well, it wouldn't have been too hard to get better after where we were. That's right. And now now we are the number one American pop culture podcast in all of India. <laughs> Thank you very much, India. Thank you. I wonder if we should ever review like a Bollywood movie or something like that. At this point, it feels like we should. Yeah. I, Except, I don't know. Do they want to hear us? No. Like really butcher talking about? Yeah, because we would know, the stuff they love. We would not know what we were talking about. I really like Bollywood movies, but I have no clue as to what I would be talking about. Yeah, it'd be way, way over my head. Way over our heads. I think they would rather. Well, number one, they would probably rather that I stop talking about them as they. That's really rude of me. Sorry, friends. <laughs> And two, they probably like, oh, there I go again, calling them they. Our friends probably like making fun of us for talking about American stuff anyways. That's that's true. That's They're true. Like, Would you listen to these two idiots? <laughs> We're like guilty pleasure listening for our friends in <laughs> India. They think to themselves, boy, when I listen to pop culture with fanboy and know-it-all, I feel all right about my life. <laughs> because at least – I am smarter than these two. I I think that's true. I mean, I'll take I'll take people who listen to us ironically. I I am in favor of that. Certainly. Certainly. We do it all the time with the movies we watch, right? That's right. Absolutely. We can take it. Speaking of taking ourselves too seriously, we are putting the spotlight on Mr. AC this go around because he's got a new book. Paul, what's the official drop date? The official drop date is it's it's actually by the time this podcast posts it will be on shelves everywhere except Every for Walmart. Every single spot. Yeah. You can get it on Amazon, you can get it other places. The name of the book is Beauty in the Browns. Here's a little bit of interesting trivia. I should actually just save this for the most least important thing. I actually have yeah. two books coming out. Two books? Two books. On February 9th, same yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I'm I'm going to save the other one for most least important thing. That's a little teasier. Oh, there you People go. Making this all about me. No, you know, you know what I'm going to do with my most least important thing about something that's not about me. Okay. Just, just so I just, just to give us a break. Exactly. There is only so much of me that anybody can handle, including me. Yeah. So the uh, the name of the other book is it's a book that I did with a guy named Jason Brown, who used to uh-huh. be the highest paid NFL center. 
like, you know, football player. He was amazingly successful in the NFL. He gave up his career to become a farmer. And now he gives all away. He gives away all of the produce that he grows. He is amazing. And I can tell you right now, his book titled Centered is going to outsell mine by like a factor of about a thousand. Because he's he's going to give away all the lettuce that comes in from his sales <laughs> to you, right? Wouldn't that be nice? But no, I, I I think that if he makes money on the book, it'll allow him to give away the food. He may keep the money because he's got eight kids. He's got eight kids, Jake. That's a few. That's a few. That's even more than you have. That's more than I've got by a factor of two. He delivered one of them himself when his, when his, um, you know, they're always delivering the babies at their farmhouse. Um, he delivered one all by himself when the midwife couldn't make it in time. Delivered so it went from their family bathtub. Oh, so he went from being the center to being the quarterback and his wife was the center. <laughs> Think he was calling out signals? <laughs> exactly. Catching the baby just right there. Jason what said a- I've had no confidence in him whatsoever. It's a great story. It really is. Is it? Is it in the book? It is in the book. Oh, good. Uh, what what teams? What team did he play for when he was the highest paid? He he started off with the uh, the Ravens, and then he became a free agent and went to the St. Louis at the time, the St. Louis Rams, and I think he made. He was signed to something like a $36 million contract or something like that. It's a, it's a small bit of lettuce right there. It's more than we make for this podcast. Who was, who was his favorite quarterback to have the hands between his legs? <laughs> you know, who had the I'm, best hands between his legs? <laughs> I'm, I, I have, Did that not come up? In, I have nothing oh. to say to that other than to say, I talking with him, I'm not sure if Jason loved football that much. I mean, he was really, really good at it, but I just don't think it was his thing. His favorite sport, he says, growing up was baseball, by far baseball. So I think he just he just snapped the ball to whoever was taking it. I think Joe Flacco was his quarterback at the time okay. uh, for a good chunk of his time in, uh, in, in, in Baltimore. I'm not sure who it was, actually. I don't think we talked about who it was for the Rams. I'm sure we can okay. follow up. It wasn't memorable. No. He's no like, probably, you know, the Rams went through, you know, so many different guys at the time. It could have been it could have been Sam Bradford. It could have been Nick Foles. It could have been a couple other schlubs that came well, trucking through St. Louis. That's really true. That is very true. He talked some about, uh, talked some about Ray Lewis for uh, – for the Baltimore Ravens. He had a run in with, uh, with Ray Lewis when he was, uh, when he was just a rookie guard, which was kind of funny. He, uh, he actually pancaked Ray Lewis during practice. And I'm sure that went over well. Yeah. <laughs> he, said, he said the next play, Ray Lewis came up and, uh, and actually pulled his Jersey over his head or something. So he couldn't move like his arms were caught. So, yeah. Yeah, that was the last time that he pancaked Ray Lewis. You just don't pancake Ray Lewis, even in practice. Well, that just sounds that just sounds silly. Ray <laughs> Ray's got to Ray's got to deal with that. That's well, you, that was my thought. But you, being the football person you are, would understand those those practice hijinks better than I would, because I was busy, you know, editing high school newspapers while you were. That's right. Well, but we're we're mostly here to talk about Paul's book about depression. Not not here for fun football stories. Oh, Unless yeah. there's some fun football stories in Paul's book about depression. But um it it is a a serious topic that I think Paul uh in classic Paul fashion has managed to to bring some humanity to. And it's a, a subject that needs a lot of humanity. Uh and because guess what? A lot of human beings happen to deal with it. So we're going to be talking about Paul's new book, Beauty and the Browns. Keeping with the book theme, we're going to do a rank geeks of the top five books that keep us coming back uh, or the top five books we keep coming back to, however way, which way you want to to phrase it. That's the fun thing about words is you can phrase them every which one done way you want. 
doesn't mean people are going to understand, but you can do it. Uh, I can tell you one that's just a sneak preview of one that's not going to be in my top five is David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. I have tried multiple times and man, his writing is so difficult in that book. Like he just, you just, you just want to punch him in the face. (laughs) The way he switches the styles, you're like, I get what you're going for here, David, but. uh, Sometimes it's distracting. You don't. It really, it really is. He gets in his own way. Yeah. But uh, all the dude bros that keep talking about how great Infinite Jest is, I don't believe a single one of them have read it. I have never read a David Foster Wallace book, to be honest. Period. Period. Yeah. And I've heard a lot about him. Like every once in a while you have these, once upon a time you had one of these, uh, these online things that said, what sort of writer are you? And actually when I typed in a sample of my writing, David Foster Wallace came back. So we're, we're both just jealous that he was more successful than us. (laughs) That is true. And then we'll wrap up the show the way we always love to wrap up the show with the most least important thing. But it's time for Finding Some Beauty in the Browns. I have had the wonderful opportunity to sit down with an author – and in an audiobook uh, narrator now. And his name oh, is Paul no. Acey. That's Welcome the- to the show, Paul. <laughs> Why, thank you, Jake. It's really nice for you to have me on. It's, uh, you know, it's not every day I get to welcome welcome <laughs> the author of a, a book and an audiobook narrator onto the show. It's only about every two weeks or so. So it's, a, it's truly an honor, um, and I appreciate you taking the time. Can I just say... The audiobook was one of the weirdest experiences I have ever had. I mean, you know, having done this podcast as long with me as we have, you know that I'm not much of a I this is very strange for me to spend an hour plus talking then to read my own stuff. It was it was horrible. It was horrible. How if you How many hours did it take you? It took me seven hours to read through the whole thing. And I found that I used the word particularly way, way too much. Because when you're trying to read the word, it just doesn't flow off the tongue. And it was impossible to get the the word particularly out on any first take. Every single time I read particularly, I did it four or five times. Were there any places, like flowing from that, any places where you just... As you're reading it, you thought to yourself, I just need to say this differently. And the audiobook will be slightly differently than the published book, and we'll be fine with that. Yes. Many, no. many times. Did I, um, you actually do it? Yeah, I did it a couple of times because sometimes when you're writing, it's just different than when you're speaking. And I, I yeah. always write for the eye more than the ear. So when I, when I was speaking, I did find that it just it some of the things just didn't work. So I did, I changed them up slightly, rearranged some verbs, tweaked something here and there. Um, man, I tell you what, I quoted so many very difficult to pronounce authors in there. It was just, it was, it was a really painful experience and yet kind of fun at the same time. I mean, it was sort of rewarding as well. Cause it was, it was the first time you've ever done that for first time I'd ever done one of your books. Like you, I mean, I, I've read to my kids, and I've always really enjoyed reading to my kids. But nonfiction books on depressing on depression, you don't get a chance to use a lot of really funny voices for that. Mm. So there's a little bit of a downer for that. Um, but but yeah, there was there was a satisfaction in doing it. There were there were parts of the book. I'll I'll be quite honest with you. There were parts of the book where I thought, ah you know what? I'm not very pleased with this. I wish I could write it over again. And then there were parts that I actually really liked. So as I read it over, I got to know my own book better. Springing off of that, what would you say was the number one thing that you would do differently writing this book again? You know, here's the weird thing about Beauty and the Browns is it's it's very autobiographical. You know, it's it's meant to be sort of this this very raw, very honest 
portrait of, of someone who deals with depression. But I found that there were parts of, especially early on, there were parts of the autobiography of it that I thought, man, this is just too much. This is too much. And I even, I even expressed that to my editor at one point in time. I said, you know what? I, I am wondering whether this all needs to be here. And she said, people need to get to know you to understand your whole story. So she, she encouraged me to keep it in. But as I read it, I just thought, man, I am, I'm just not thrilled with uh, talking so much about, you know, the person I was in fourth grade or the person I was in college. Hopefully it'll be interesting to somebody else. I mean, I always kind of think that I'm more boring than everybody else around me. So hopefully, boy, I'm doing a really good job of selling this book, aren't I? <laughs> uh, but hopefully the people will find it interesting. You know, there's, there's, there's some interesting things about it, but. Well, you know, it's like the, the modern audience, the cliche we talk about with the modern audience is that they won't care what you know until they know that you care. And that's a tough thing to do as an author when you can't be personally sitting down over coffee with the reader and saying, tell me about yourself. And so there has to be that element of you opening yeah. up and showing that you care about them by, by sharing your own story and helping them locate right. themselves in your, in your own story. And that's tough, I think, for yeah. a personality I know for my own personality and for what you're expressing your own, how did you, how did you get yourself there? Because you're not the showy, you know, talk about me personality. Yeah. And especially when it comes to this deeper stuff that, you know, I imagine you've mostly just talked about in select situations with people you'd know and trust. So to get yourself to that place to tell a wider audience, you know, how was that process for you um, in dealing with your own emotions? Here is here is the big secret. I, I never really told any about anybody about a lot of this stuff. It was because I am such a private person and because I really, I don't like to, I mean, I guess everybody sort of likes to talk about themselves on some level. Right. But I, I never want to be, I never wanted to be known for this particular topic for sure. And this is not something that I really, I really advertise. You know, it's nothing I've ever advertised. It's, I've reviewed movies for, you know, more than 10 years now. And I like to talk about movies. I like to be the, the funny movie guy. I like to make people laugh. I don't like to talk about depression. To be honest with you, my, my very best friends didn't know about a lot of the stuff that I wrote about. Um, my parents didn't know about a lot of this stuff that I wrote about. I, it was uh, a difficult, it was a difficult process. It just was, it was a really difficult process. At, at the same time, I think that there's something in my personality that has, like, I have a much easier time writing about some of these things than I do talking about them. Like if you and I, Jake, we would, if we sat down for coffee and you asked me, so tell me all the terrible secrets about your depression, I would really try to change the subject quickly because it's yeah. not something that I, I really love to talk about, but I can be much more confessional oddly when I'm talking with a bunch of strangers. And, and as you know, from reading, from reading the first chapter, I, I say that, that there's parts of me that I don't want the people who are closest to me to even read this book because it's just, it's just hard stuff. I mean, it's just, some of it is really difficult. Does that answer? Sense, a little bit. Uh, I mean, in a sense, it seems like, you know, to bring this to a pop culture reference, going back and watching um, First Man, right, about Neil Armstrong, where in in a sense, uh, it was tough for him to open up to those around him as much as he was maybe in the public spotlight and, and yeah. being analyzed and gouged and poked and prodded professionally. Um, yeah. getting ready for this moon launch and, and all the, the prep. And then of course, of course the media afterwards. And yet those maybe that had the hardest time getting into his head were those closest to him. There's a sense maybe that 
when we can feel more anonymous in a huge crowd in the big in the right. Uh, against the press than we are to get completely emotionally naked in front of those that know us the best. It's, it's a, it's a weird phenomenon. Um, you know, I've, I've experienced it in my own little ways where I, Hey, put me on, on a stage in front of 500 people and I feel fine. I will laugh. I'll joke. I'll be funny. Have me give a presentation in front of 10 people that I work with and I can be awkward and hesitate and um and ah and have trouble with it. And so there's a sense that I I think that makes sense what you're saying of almost when we can do so in this sort of confessional to a whole bunch of people who you'll probably never meet, it it gives you sort of lends you an air of anonymity, perhaps. It really does. And I, I think that to answer your question more directly, the, the main catalyst was I've, I've dealt with, with some of these issues for years and years and years and years and years. My son also deals with depression. And um, through some, some painful episodes I, that, that the book sort of outlines, I kind of realized that it was time for me you know, because he and I had never really talked about it either. It was, and I, I thought it was about time for me to really come clean with what I deal with and more importantly, how I deal with it, you know, day to day, how do you move past some of these, some of these rough spots? I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm depressed all the time because I'm not, but, but I do think that, that, some of that is because I've learned how to deal with it on a day-to-day, week-by-week basis. And I wanted to pass some of that stuff on to, on to my son and hopefully have, have it help him. Um, and who knows? Maybe it'll help other people as well. How did you process that with the people in your life? Because I'm assuming you had to talk to some of them about this to say, hey, I'm, I'm talking about this in my book. Are you okay with that? Like, what was that process like for you? And did it help you and those relationships as you went through the process of writing this all out? It's a really good question. I think um, I, I I really didn't spill anyone's dirty laundry except for mine and my son's to some extent. Um, but I, obviously, because it is so personal, um, there were people who who I I talked about here, primarily in a in a positive way, um, because with my own depression, at least in the process of writing the book, the depression is so much. When you're talking about about depression, it can come in a lot of different forms. Like you can have catalysts for certain things, like a death of a loved one, a loss of a job, a, a, a loss of a relationship um, can be huge triggers for, for depression. And people obviously can become massive catalysts for depression as well. You know, I, I think that, that relationships can be inherently difficult. My own depression, as I wrote about it, felt much more centered on how I was feeling about myself. Um, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of not being good enough. And I'm sure that, that maybe those all had catalysts in some ways. I'm sure that there's, there's deep, dark secrets that if you, that if I sat on a couch for 15 hours, there, there would be reasons for that. But so much of it was just how I processed me and how I dealt and deal with other people. There are times, I, seriously, this morning, even as I was getting into the car, I remembered something that I said to somebody in passing 20 years ago. And I literally hit my head against the window of my car because I thought, what a stupid thing to say. You know, and it's one of these things where you punish yourself for not being who you think you should be. And that can be it's a, it's just a difficult journey. So, so for me, a lot of it was, I did talk about other people, but a lot of it was just unpacking, unpacking what, what mental illness has meant for me and how, how it is made my life really difficult and at times threatened to destroy it. You know, not who facilitated that, but how my own wonky brain sort of did. So yeah. as you've been processing all of that, have you seen 
any sort of cathartic effect uh, in yourself and in your relationships with others um, that's been positive and not just, ah, shoot, I'm so dumb for that stuff that happened in the past. <laughs> like, yeah. What have, have been the positive benefits of, be, you know, allowing yourself to process this stuff in a new way? Well, you know, it's sort of interesting. A lot of people, not a lot of people, some, I had a couple of people who asked me, what do you really know about depression? I mean, it's different from going through being a depressed person and, and knowing, you know, being an expert, being a psychologist or a psychiatrist or whatever. Um, one of the things that the book actually, they were absolutely right, is is what I mean to say is that I don't necessarily know a lot about the chemistry or the psychology of depression. I only know how it makes me feel and how it has impacted my life and what I deal with to deal with it. And one of the things that, that I sort of have grown to understand, I, the process of writing has, has been difficult but cathartic and educational in a lot of ways, because I think the process of writing um, allows me to understand a little bit more why my brain falls into some of those dark patterns. You know, I think a lot of it comes to situations where I'm feeling a loss of control or whatnot. And, and that, that was sort of an interesting revelation. Honestly, I didn't quite put all the numbers together until after the book was done. When I started doing interviews is when I thought, I'm starting to notice some patterns that I didn't even notice when I was doing the book. And it was cathartic. It was, it felt very painful and surprisingly healthy, like a good cry does. You know, there are, there are chapters that when I was reading for the audiobook, I, I still can't get through without breaking down at some level because they're hard. But there's something, there's something liberating about allowing that stuff to to leave, you know, to to talk about it. And and again, being a private person, I tend not to talk about these things. So the book sort of forces me to talk about them. It's a very self-serving book. That's what I'm realizing <laughs> as we're talking. It's a very self-serving book. It's like it's like the old Friends episode, right? Trying to do something altruistic, and no, you always golly feel good about what you're doing so it's self-serving in the end it's like you always need to be self-flagellating like paul bettany's character in the da vinci code <laughs> that's that's how it can be well speaking of pop culture tie-ins paul i i did want to to ask maybe a pop culture related question or two for beauty and the browns just to uh because i i can and <laughs> i'm controlling this interview exactly and all you have, all you can do is sit there and answer it. You can't walk you out. You need to write a book so I can interview you. It's this true. is the next step. That's right. When it comes to uh, your lived experience, has there been any pop culture, whether that's a movie, a TV show, music, book, that has uh, you along your journey had played a particularly profound role, whether in a moment or over the course of time sort of reflecting on it, uh, in a positive way in your journey related to depression. So this will probably come as no surprise, but the Lord of the Rings, I found myself, I quoted it more than I thought I did in my book, you know, because I think that the Lord of the Rings really encompasses a lot about how I see depression in some ways. It's really that journey up Mount Doom in some ways where you feel like you can't go on. You have this weight. You know, Frodo has this ring that's weighing him down. It's pulling him down. It's sapping all the enjoyment out of life. He, you know, he has this big, long speech in, in oh, goodness. I can't remember whether it was, it, it, I'm sure it was Return of the King where Sam tries to remind him about the strawberries of the Shire. And, and he says, I I can't taste the strawberries. I don't remember the Shire. All I can see is the eye. All I can see is the eye. And when you're in the teeth of depression, um, that's what it can feel like. You know, you just, you can't take enjoyment with anything. You feel like you're weighted down. You feel like you can't move on. Um, so the example of Samwise 
picking Frodo up and carrying him. Um, there's a real power in that story for me. And I love, I love Sam's narration earlier on in the series where he talks about, it's just like the great stories of Mr. Frodo, where you wonder how can this be a happy ending? How can we ever see a happy ending? Because everything is so bleak and so terrible. But those stories mean something because these people persevered. And that's depression too. You know, you push through when it looks like you can't push through. You keep moving when you want to stop. And um, so the power of, of that journey, that, that, that pushing on when you think that you have no strength, that really resonates in, in, in my own journey. And I think that, that, that I found that to be uh, really a powerful tool in my own. Th- and and I'll, I'll be honest with you too. You know, sometimes when you're looking for reasons to move on, when you're looking for reasons to, to push through, the Lord of the Rings, the new episode coming out, you know, it, it, as it was rolling out in the early 2000s, that was when I was probably in a in in one of my darker periods. And I thought, you know what, I, I got to stick around to see how Return of the King is going to turn out. You know, you you think about these little um, carrots in your life. They don't have to be big carrots, but just these carrots in your life that you say, I want to see how that turns out. I want to see how the Denver Broncos are going to do next year. I want to see my son graduate from college. I want to see my grandchild. I want to see these things, these moments in my life. I have to be around to see them. And yeah, so you have, because I'm such a pop culture geek, a lot of those pop culture elements were were things that just provided a little bit of carrot along the way. Now, Paul, something that's always struck me about interviews of this nature is I'm sh- you've probably been asked the same different versions of the same questions a dozen different <laughs> times by different people. And I imagine as an author, like you talked about, there's things as you reread it, doing the audiobook that stuck out to you, things and probably things that you're like, I wish somebody would ask me about this part, but nobody knows to ask me about it because they only read the first chapter or the press kit. (laughs) What's that element or those elements for you when it comes to beauty and the Browns that you wish I would have asked? You know, I'm, I'm still on the early stage of the interview process, to be honest with you. So I'm happy to talk about anything, but one of the questions, actually I'll, I'll, I'll flip this around because I always do this to you, Jake. I answer completely the, the opposite question of what you asked. One of the questions that I wasn't necessarily anticipating, but I've been grateful, um, has been asked is where in the heck the, the title comes from? It wasn't my title, but I think it really fits. And, and, and the title comes from when I was in high school, you know, Jake and I live in Colorado, which is generally a beautiful state. But a lot of my family comes from the San Luis Valley in Colorado, which is one of the coldest, bleakest, driest parts of Colorado, right? Um, typically, the, the temperatures in Alamosa, Colorado, which is right in the heart of the San Luis Valley, they're lower than what you would get in Fairbanks, Alaska, or Fargo, North Dakota. It's, it's a really harsh place. And all my family comes from there. One year, when I was in high school, we went to visit my grandma down in Alamosa. It was February or something. The wind was howling. The temperatures were, you know, around zero. And my dad, who doesn't make sense to me sometimes, he he said, why don't, why don't we go for a walk? So me and my sister, we, we threw on five or six coats. We said our prayers. We had to go off into the cold, right? And we walked around these vacant lots in Alamosa, just these vacant lots in Alamosa where there was trash, where there were, you know, old ruined cars and the trees were all skeletal. The, the weeds were all waist high. It, everything looked brown and bleak and cold and yucky. And that was all I could think about. And my dad, who's an artist, looked at all of this and he said to me, man, 
Look at all these browns. Isn't it beautiful? And that's sort of what I think depression sometimes allows me to find is depression is horrible. It's really, really terrible. No doubt about it. But I think the fact that I have had it has allowed me to see the beauty in the browns, the beauty in what we would think is uglier typically, what is bleaker, what is colder, because there's a subtle beauty in all of that stuff that we so often miss. And I think I would have missed it had it not been for the way I am, the way God made me. It's it's a weird thing to say, and it's, it's probably one of the more controversial parts of the book, right? To say, I'm grateful for depression. But in a way, I think it's true, you know, because I think it has given me, it has made me who I am. And uh, that's, there's something to that, you know? I'm the way I am, and as much as sometimes I kick myself for not saying the right thing, I'm glad of who I am because I think I have something to offer. That's and I, what I've been actually surprised going to, to answer. You know, it's, it's, it's in the very last chapter of the book, so it's almost like a spoiler, but I, I really enjoy talking about it. <laughs> you know, there are those people that just like to crack open and read the last page, last chapter of the book to decide if the rest of it is worth reading. And I think you just gave us a really beautiful picture into that. And, and I'll say on a personal level, Paul, uh, as we wrap up this little interview on Beauty and the Browns that, you know, I'm grateful for who you are and, and. Oh, well, that's nice. So that's, it's, uh, that's it's meaningful. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. That I, that is, I, I don't even know how to respond to that. That's another part of depression. I don't know how to respond to compliments. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I imagine with your, what, INFP personality, INFJ. Very no, INFP. Yeah. That's that's. I think the the INF personality struggles with accepting compliments as well. <laughs> but uh, I'm grateful also for the time uh, of, of you talking about this because I know you are going to be talking to. You've already talked about. You've already mentioned here how much you've had to read and reread your book and talk about your book, and you're going to need a vacation once this thing is out in the uh, wild will need a vacation. It's, it is tough work. And you know, honestly, this part of it, I mean, talking with you is great, Jake, because we, we talk all the time and I enjoy it. The interview process is just hard for me. It's just hard. I'd much rather just write books and let people read it and never do another interview. I just, it's not my thing, but still. Here you are. This is the world you live in. <laughs> Beauty in the Browns by Paul A.C. That's A-S-A-Y. It's hitting bookstores and online retailers. I mean, you can pre-order right now, but it's it's live. You don't have to pre-order. It's live as of February 9th. So you, it's my right friends, there. can just get it and get an Amazon drone to deliver it to you post-haste. Order 20 or 30 copies so all these interviews I'm doing will not be in vain. That's right. 40 if you want. Is there a bulk discount anywhere? <laughs> <laughs> if only. Maybe there is. Who knows? Someone can tell me if they order it for all their friends and relations. There you go. If you bulk order it, let Paul know. <laughs> I'm sure he'll he'll autograph a copy or two for you if you buy that many. But now, speaking of books and uh, things that that keep us coming back those those things we've enjoyed or that have resonated with us at that deeper level it's time for rank geeks for rank geeks we're getting booky with it and uh paul my confession to you and to all of our dear friends is that I was a bookworm nerd as a child, but I've become a meathead 
as an adult. I read so few books now that I'm embarrassed, you know, to even be doing this segment ranking the top five books I come back to because I just haven't come back to that many books. I've gotten really bad ever since college at reading anything. I joked to Paul earlier that two of the only books I've read in the last decade were his books, and it's pretty close to true. Yeah, it's it's spoiled the whole book experience for you permanently, I think. Well, that's that's not how I would put it, but you know, I I could see how you could get there, or maybe it's just that I didn't yeah. need to read anymore after I read those books. Yeah, oh they yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they were the pinnacle of all book experiences. Oh yes, yes, I'm sure. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens or God on the Streets of Gotham by Paul Acey. Yes. Right. You know what? When you do the when you do the tenth anniversary of God on the Streets of Gotham and you republish it with updates and stuff like that, uh, I I will endorse it and I'll say I have not read another single book after reading this book. I have been completely unable to to. I have ascended the mountain. We'll we'll talk about some some books by good authors soon. Right, actual good authors. Perhaps. We'll see. Paul, number five on your list of books you keep coming back to. This is a really tricky one because I I also like books. Um and I'm I'm actually putting my list together even as we speak. But I'm gonna put here is my number five pick. And that would be Bird by Bird and Lamont. Bird by Bird and Lamont? By Bird and Lamont. Have you read that book, Jake? No, of course you haven't. I, I have not. It is, a, it is actually a writing book. I don't read a lot of writing books, uh, but it, it really talks about the process of writing. And it's where I was sort of introduced to Anne Lamott, who is this sort of weird Christian writer um, who probably a lot, of, a lot of Christians would look askance to. But I tell you what. Bird by Bird is brilliant. If even if you're not a writer, it's just a great book, not only about writing but about life. And I I quoted her in the book that I just wrote, as a matter of fact, because her title is uh, taken from a great story about her brother um, when he was a little boy was really stressed over this project and he needed to get this report done on all these birds and he waited until the last moment, which I can really relate to. Um, his dad sat him down and said, take it bird by bird, buddy. Just take it bird by bird. And that's a great philosophy in life. You know, when you chip away at things a little bit, um, it really helps. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why I keep coming back to it is because it has little nuggets of wisdom all throughout. I, I really like that book. She's written some other great books. Bird by Bird is probably my favorite. There you go. Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. Number five on my list is a book by Gordon McKenzie, who most people probably haven't heard of because he wasn't a prolific author of, uh, anything other than really this book and a whole bunch of Hallmark cards. He worked at Hallmark <laughs> for over 30 years, uh, but he wrote a book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. And then the subtitle is A Corporate Fool's Guide to Surviving with Grace. And uh, this book was actually recommended to me by a guy that led um, creative and for um, – IBM's Watson, you know, AI, like working for this very technical company. And uh, it was just fascinating to hear a guy talking about working for a tech company, a computer company, talk about having to do creative and, and reading a book by a guy who worked for Hallmark. And it's a fascinating book. It's very whimsical um, and yet very grounded because it's about people who are creatively driven in particular um, working well inside the hairball of organizations. And it's very compassionate for the working person. Um, it, it's, it's not a all corporate is evil. It's, hey, you're working with human beings and here's how you can work with these human beings without losing your mind as a creative. And it's a fascinating one to have made my list because you don't really think of this type of book as the one you keep coming back to, but I've used it in so many different ways um, in my life and in my career, um, because it's such a fun read, it makes a really tough and frustrating topic very accessible and humorous and light 
but also in really profound ways. So there you go. Orbiting the Giant Hairball by Gordon McKenzie. Orbiting the Giant Hairball. I kind of want to read it now. It's a good sale. It's worth the read. Uh, Number four on my list, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Ooh, what a title. It is, yeah, it is It is by Annie Dillard. It actually won the Pulitzer Prize back in 1974. And what it is is a series of essays. She actually did sort of a, a throw thing where she retreated off into the wilderness for a pretty good year um, and just wrote about nature. She observed nature and wrote about it. She's also sort of sneakily Christian, so she has some some interesting observations about faith. And sometimes those those observations are really hard. And I will be honest, the book itself, I found really difficult to get through the first time because primarily I was actually reading it in, in malls right before movies, you know, as I was waiting for, for movie screenings, I would, I would read it while eating my hamburger, waiting to go to a movie. And, and man, it is a dense book. It is not an easy book to read, but she has such beautiful turns of phrases And uh, it's really a powerful book in a very sneaky way. The writing is just off the charts. There are some writers, being a writer myself, I have a huge appreciation for good writing. And there are certain writers that you look at and you think, I have no idea how they do that. You know, Toni Morrison, I think, how does she do what she does? Annie Dillard's another one. And um, I find myself coming back to it just for some of the moments that I've read that are just beautiful, just beautiful. Gorgeous, gorgeous. Gorgeous. Number four on my list is probably the most odd on my list. And that's saying something since I just talked about a giant hairball. <laughs> and it's probably the one Paul will get the most upset about. So here we go. It's uh, it's called the it's from 2012 and it's called The Ten make that nine habits of very organized people uh, make that 10 <laughs> the tweets of steve martin and talk talk about like just knowing how to monetize the heck out of something that is completely throwaway steve martin probably one of the greatest comedic minds of all time managed to take his own Twitter feed and turn it into a book that he could sell. (laughs) It works. It's fantastic. It's in the vein of all of your classic bathroom reading material. And it's all comprised of Steve Martin tweets and the way he plays with it in quirky, fun little ways inside the book, the way it's visualized, it all works really well. And I've read it twice. And I already follow him on Twitter. So really, I've read it like three times. Exactly. Steve Martin, he's brilliant. He is brilliant. He's a he's a very smart dude. And I also enjoy his tweets. So yeah. it's a there book I want to read. I, honestly, now, now that you have opened the door with Steve Martin's Twitter feed... <laughs> I'm going to have to change my number three and be real <laughs> honest because I'm going to say one of the books, maybe the book I come back to again and again the most, Dave Barry's Greatest Hits. Dave Barry's Greatest Hits. So are you familiar with Dave Barry at all? Only a little bit. When I was a kid, my goal when newspapers were a thing was to be a humor columnist for a newspaper. I wanted mm. to be uh, – we had a local – Irma Bombeck. Exactly. I loved Irma Bombeck. I read all of her books. We had this guy named Frank Boggs who wrote humor columns for our paper, and I knew him, and he was like a celebrity to me. And Dave Barry is the ultimate humor columnist. He was hilarious and is still hilarious. Um, newspapers are no longer a thing, but I still have his book. And I seriously think I have read through it four times. I am such a Dave Barry fan that actually a friend of mine went to a writer's conference and met Dave Barry, got his signature. She tore it off of a piece of paper for me, brought it back. I taped it in Dave Barry's greatest hits book. (laughs) That is incredible. I love it. 
Yeah, that that's an honorable mention for me, and not Dave Barry's greatest hits, but Irma Bombeck. I have read her books multiple times, and I each of them, and I couldn't pick. I I don't know if I could pick one because they're all so good. <laughs> so great pick there. Number three for me is not nearly so funny, but is something I probably have referenced more than any other book in recent the last four years in particular. Uh, and that is, and it's an older book and it's called amusing ourselves to death. Oh yeah. By Neil Postman. And, uh, it was, it was written many decades ago and Neil Postman is no longer with us, but he was analyzing, um, public discourse and public affairs in the age of show business. So he was looking at television and radio and movies um, pre-internet. He was writing all of this pre-internet, and he um, was looking at the landscape of mediated public discourse and saying, what does it look like when the entire populace is amusing themselves to death? What does it look like? How, How does the medium that we're consuming content through inform and make the message that people are receiving. And, um, you know, he had a lot to say about what it means to make both make and consume information on television or on the movie screens or on radio versus in books. And, uh, and he's pretty scathing about it. And it, and it felt very pertinent as we looked at the way people process information, uh, the way we ourselves process information in 2020 or 21 now um, through tweets, you know, coming back to Steve Martin or through Instagram posts or Facebook uh, comment threads and uh, Reddit threads or whatever, wherever that may be. Neil Postman was really uh, very prophetic in his own way looking at uh, how our minds and our conversations are shaped by the mediums we use. So anyways, amusing ourselves to death, Neil Postman, it'll slap you across the face a couple of times and then you'll just keep coming back to it and tweeting about (laughs) it, which is like the most meta thing in the world. Well, it is fascinating. You know, I think when I think about mentioning that book on a pop culture podcast, I mean, there's a certain irony to that, right? Absolutely. Really true. I mean, we can we can appreciate a lot of the the entertainment that is around us, and still acknowledge that getting too obsessed with it can be a problem. Number two, the silver chair. I come back to the silver chair. The silver chair is by far the Chronicles of Narnia has always been a favorite series of mine, and the silver chair has always been oddly enough one of my my favorite book in the series. I don't think a lot of people can say that, but. I think that the themes that C.S. Lewis deals with in there, the, the concepts of doubt, of struggle, of pushing forward, you know, all the stuff that we actually just talked about in the first segment, Silver Chair really talks a lot about that. Um, and I've, I've loved it ever since I was 11 years old. I think that Puddleglum is still one of my very favorite characters in all of the, the Narnia books. Uh, really loved the Emerald Queen. She was just so wicked. Um, it's a fun read, but it also has some surprising depth. And I think um, I've probably read The Silver Chair since I was 12, maybe seven or eight times. So mm-hmm. it's a book that that by definition I come back to again and again. Yeah. Puddleglum is a surprisingly darkly comic character for that series. When you look at all of the Chronicles of Narnia and the amount of humor in the darkness and sort of angst of Puddleglum is is really kind of fun and different for us, the Chronicles of Narnia. So that's a great pick. And it, it segues nicely to my number two because my number two is also from the Chronicles of Narnia. And I struggled with this because there's other there's other Narnia books that maybe I like uh, a little bit more, um, except but this one is the one I've probably returned to the most and re- referred to the most, and uh, in particular one scene that I've talked about, I believe probably ad nauseum every chance I get, and so that's where <laughs> it landed. Uh, that this is the one that ended up landing on my list, and that is the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's a great I book. Think, you know, it works. It's a rip roaring, seafaring adventure. And so it's a fun read in that regard. You have little mini adventures 
populated throughout. So it sort of feels a bit like uh, the classic uh, Odyssey, right? And with your different heroes journeys for characters. But one of the most powerful messages on grace and repentance and God's forgiveness for us in the midst of our mess and uh, in our inability to clean up ourselves. Like, I don't know that it has been written any better than C.S. Lewis did in the voyage of the Don Treader. Um, when he talked about a young boy trying to unbecome a dragon and, uh, it's, that's why the voyage of the Don Treader ended up landing number two on my list. Yeah. I tell you the, the imagery of, Aslan coming around and ripping off the scales, man, oh man, I tell you what, that is something. One thing that C.S. Lewis did in all of his books is he had these really memorable illustrations that you will remember for the rest of your life. You don't need to come back to these books again and again because you'll remember those, those elements all throughout your entire life, but you want to because they're just so dang fun. Right. All right, number one for number me. One. My second children's book on this list shows you something about my level of intellect, I suppose. The Little Prince. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the uh, the author's name. Antoine de Saint-Exprit. Eh, he's French. Who yeah. cares? No, I'm just kidding. Sorry, French people. We're not the number one French show, American show in France yet, and that's why, because I'm rude. <laughs> so let me be honest. One of the reasons I come back to this book again and again is because it's short. I can read it in, you know, half an hour, hour. It's fantastic. But it is so winsome and so thoughtful and it so grounding in a way where I think that it reminds you of, you know, where your priorities should be as you, as you deal with the little prince and, and all the planets that he visits with the kings and the businessmen and the tipplers. Um, and you know, the, the love story at the center of it, the little prince and his little rose, um, there's something very bittersweet about that as well. It's, it's, it's a really strange book and yet I kind of love it. And I, I really didn't even discover it until I was in college. This is not a book that I learned about when I was growing up, but I really gravitated toward it in college and I've never stopped. Yeah, it's a it's a you call it a children's book, but really it's a, ch- a book for lost children. Oh, uh, that's very nice, Jake. Thank you, thank you. That's a that's a soundbite. Clip that, editors. Editors, me. <laughs> it's really the book that Peter Pan needed in Hook, right? When he needed to remember something that he had lost in himself, his inner child. So, yeah. uh, the Little Prince is a fantastic book in that regard, and ultimately ends up being more for adults, really, than it is for kids. Because I think to the kids, it's almost uh, they would read it and think, "Yeah, duh." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the, uh, this is a common sense book, and then all the adults read it and think to themselves, "My goodness, this is profound." <laughs> He has hit something and the kids just think to themselves, uh, yeah, yeah, this sounds like Tuesday. (laughs) Isn't that the way it is? Man, I tell you, you go back to some of these children's books and you find there's something just sort of rich in them that you just, you don't appreciate as much as, as a kid as you do an adult. Number one on my list really just should give everyone, uh, complete the theme of my list because it's a book that we all know as a book, but didn't start off as a book. And so like Steve Martin's, where he just turned a bunch of tweets into a book, this wasn't even turned into a book by the person himself. (laughs) That book is, of course, The Practice of the Presence of God by a 17th century Carmelite friar named Brother Lawrence. Um, Wow. And... He it, again. It was not a book. It was it's uh, it's a compilation of conversations that people had with him or letters that he wrote as a dishwashing monk in the 17th century. Completely unremarkable to the world, except that he talked about what it's like to be a normal bumbling. He talks about how clumsy he is as a dishwasher and as a, just as a human being, and yet ultimately stumbles across something incredibly profound about how man can walk with a divine, perfectly divine God, and pra- by practicing His presence every day in the midst of you know, falling face first into a sink full of 
greasy, soapy fryer dishes. It's a book that I've read since probably middle school, you know, after my dad recommended it to me and that I've come back to multiple times since then. And even now, like talking to my own children about and hope that, you know, I can bless them with the things that blessed me. So the practice of the presence of God, Brother Lawrence, worth a little read. Not very long either. Very interesting. I I have new stuff for my for my little nightstand. I've got yeah. a stack of a books of about fifteen deep, but that's going to make it. It's going to make it sixteen deep now. There you go. And that it's a and perfect one for the top because it's nice. It's little. It's you know it's not too intimidating, so it'll stack nicely on top of the bigger ones. Because <laughs> I know you got infinite jest at the bottom of that pile. Exactly. Exactly. There you have it for the top five books that always keep us coming back. What is your favorite book or five books that always keep you coming back? Hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. And now it's time for a speed round edition of the most least important thing. the most least important thing the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours taking pike's peak a mountain paul and i know very well and crushing it down into dust into (laughs) a veritable molehill or uh building up the dust in paul's backyard literal molehills and turning those into mountains that's what we do here and it's the most least important thing paul what do you have for us this time so, Jake, what was your favorite Super Bowl commercial? We all My know favorite. the Super Bowl was a bit of a dud. So what was your favorite commercial? Yeah, for Super Bowl LV, as the Romans would say. My favorite one, I think, ended up being the Amazon Alexa one with Michael B. Jordan. What do you know? Guess what? Lots of people agree with you. On USA's Today's official ad meter, they do this every year. They rank all the uh, all the Super Bowl ads, and they allow people to vote on them. Number three was Amazon Alexa's body. So you have a lot of company. But guess what the number one and number two commercials were? Um, uh, Doritos, Matthew McFlat, Matthew, and... Uh... The one with uh, the who did it? Uh, gosh, dang it! I, I'm completely bright. I can't even talk. My words don't come out good. <laughs> uh, I'm the worst. Just tell me. I can't. All talk. right, all right. Believe it or not, for the first time, I think maybe ever, Rocket Mortgage took number one and number two. Oh wow. Yes. So the Rocket Mortgage commercials were the ones with, with Tracy Morgan. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, certain is better. So, yes, uh, it was it, the, the one with Dave Bautista was the, the number one Rocket Mortgage commercial. Uh, the other one with Joey Bosa was the number two Rocket Mortgage commercial. So those are actually the top two vote getters in USA Today's thing. Well, number big day for into it. Huh? Said a big day for Intuit. No doubt. Man, oh man. So in case you're interested, M&M's Come Together was number four. Toyota Upstream was number five. In my personal favorite, despite the swear words in it. Number six, General Motors No Way Norway with Will Ferrell. (laughs) That one was pretty good. (laughs) I did like that. There's something uh, in my watch party. There was something uh, a friend of mine noted that there's just something special about Will Ferrell's unbridled rage. <laughs> I don't know what it is about Will Ferrell. I was, uh, yeah, yeah, it made me perk up and notice when anybody uh, takes on Norway. I'm, I'm always there for that. So it's funny. Paul and I did not speak about what our separate, mostly important things were for this episode, but mine was also Super Bowl commercial related. <laughs> was it really? <laughs> it is. But it was not because uh, it was a commercial that I I thought was okay. It didn't strike me as particularly um, great, but it did strike me and stand out to me because I I think it's a good moment to make everyone feel old. And don't we all just love those moments? Uh, So 
a commercial came on with Wayne and Garth. Classic Wayne's World commercial. It was the Uber Eats Wayne's World commercial that also happened to feature a current pop star just to get the kids involved because, you know, they knew not everybody would know Mike Myers and Dana Carvey as Wayne and Garth, right? Exactly. So they included Cardi B. And that struck me. I, I, I said out loud, sort of in a moment, you know, did I say that out loud? Of, <laughs> Do you think Cardi B's ever seen Wayne's World? <laughs> and that sparked me to go look up and see because then my next thought was, wait a second. Was Cardi B even born when Wayne's World came out? And sure enough, she was not. Goodness gracious. Wayne's World came out in February of 1992. Cardi B was born in October of 1992 so they actually did at least come from the same year wow wow that is pretty incredible based on when she was born it's possible she was conceived after her parents went on a date to see wayne's world (laughs) not to you know but it's it's possible that that feels a little creepy i don't know why yeah, we don't need to get into that part of it, but I was just struck by the fact that uh, it's highly likely that Cardi B had no idea who she was in that commercial with. It makes you think, 20 years from now, Cardi B will be in a commercial with some other young person because no one will know who Cardi B is, right? right. We'll be like, was that person even born when Cardi B got famous? Exactly, exactly. For doing weird dove noises? We might be doing this as the most least important thing 25 years from, from now. On, the, on Cardi B and her appearance on a Super Bowl ad. From your lips to God's ears. That's it for this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. Thanks again to author and audiobook reader Paul AC for joining us on this episode. It's been a pleasure getting to talk about Beauty and the Browns. Make sure you get a copy. It's available everywhere you can buy your books, except possibly Walmart. You might <laughs> call ahead at Walmart just to double check. But until next time, I'm Jake. I am Paul. We'll catch you on the flip side. Bye.